What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast. Not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Rika. Had a big election last night. You know, big election in general, a lot of different contests around the country, but a pretty big night for the Democrats. I'm not sure it was quite blue wave territory, but there were a bunch of races around the country that were being watched closely, either because of their inherent significance or as races that might give us some insight into what is going to happen next year in the presidential and the congressional elections in 2024. In many cases, it was both in Ohio with the abortion referendum that passed enshrining abortion rights in the state constitution, in the legislative races in Virginia, and then a bunch of other races, even ones that are like a bit unique, like the uh, gubernatorial race in Kentucky, uh, where the Democratic incumbent governor not only won re-election, but actually expanded his majority uh, you know, both in numerical and geographical terms from 2019 when he was first uh, elected. The reason I say that that is kind of unique is that I think everybody uh, recognizes that uh, Andy Bashir is sort of his own brand. His father was a popular uh, governor in Kentucky. So that's part of it. But he's also just been a really popular and successful governor. But one of the things that you could see is that he ran well ahead of every other statewide Democratic uh, candidate. So you can't exactly say that that is, wow, you know, Democrats, Democrats are coming on strong in Kentucky. It's still a very red, very Republican state. But even there, you can say that it was not without a significant amount of national significance. If there were some kind of democratic tide, it's very hard, anti-democratic tide, it's very hard to imagine that he wouldn't at least have done worse than he did four years ago and maybe lost. It's a very Republican state. It's also the case that he ran very strong on abortion rights, which is not something you would necessarily expect in a very red state, although there was that quasi-abortion referendum in Kentucky. Uh, it was actually, unlike a lot of these races, it was not attempting to uh, enshrine abortion rights. It was trying to do the opposite. So it lost, but the fact that it lost did not have an immediate effect. It was more just a gauge of the electoral strength of abortion rights, even in, even in a very red state. So as I said, there were a bunch of these races across the country, and it's very hard to find one where Democrats did not 
at least do well, and in many cases, exceed expectations, even expectations for Democrats or, you know, by Democrats. There's one thing I want to remind you of, and it's something that came to mind to me as I was watching the results come in last night. And thank you to everybody who joined me for sort of the live blogging right, which I haven't done as much in recent years, which I did last night as as the returns came in. But if you remember, if you're a regular listener to the pod, I don't know if it was two or three episodes ago of the pod, but Kate and I were talking about this upcoming election. And I asked Kate, I said, Kate, can you help me understand? I guess there's maybe there's a slight chance that we talked about this before the episode started. I don't think so. I think it was on the episode. But in case if you are a uh, a podcast completist and you're thinking, "Wow, Josh, you never said that. What are you what are you trying to pull here?" I did say it. I think it was on the podcast, but occasionally we we discuss stuff before the, the you know, before we start recording. In any case, I asked Kate, "What's the Can you explain to me what's going on in Virginia because it's being treated as Glenn Youngkin may get, may take over, may get a trifecta, right? He may, he may get a total Republican control of the state legislature. And then, you know, he wants to pass this 15-week abortion ban, which he not only wants to do in Virginia, but is clearly a, a setup for not only what he would like to do nationwide, but what he says he can achieve nationwide. It's sort of his test case for why he would be either a good presidential candidate in 2024 or in some future election. Virginia is basically a blue state, maybe a little purple still, you know, notwithstanding the fact that that Youngkin was uh, elected. It's basically a blue state. And he's pretty clearly running on this 15 week abortion ban. So how is this going to work? We've seen everywhere that abortion restriction is just a total loser for Republicans. So what am I not getting that this is either a, you know, a real possibility or even a likelihood? And Kate said very correctly that it's mainly vibes more than evidence. There's never good polling on state legislative elections because polling is expensive and you can't just do you know the equivalent of like a con- a congressional generic ballot in a state that's not going to tell you enough right because it's down to in, you know individual races when it's you know relatively close like like it is in a case like this and you're not going to you're not going to do individual polls of the top half dozen races that are going to you know going to determine control so there wasn't a lot of polls but Glenn Youngkin, especially for the national press, which is located kind of in Glenn Youngkin's backyard, a lot of them live in Virginia just because of the way the geography of D.C., as we know, he was still a golden boy. Glenn figured out how to get elected governor in Virginia, and he's got this vest that he wears, and he's sort of like a dashing middle-aged man. What's not to love, Right. And in fact, what is not entirely vibes is that he's got a pretty solid public approval rating in Virginia, which is which is real, right? That's not that's that's a real thing. It's one thing that is actually interesting is that a lot of governors right now have strong public approval. One thing I noticed a couple weeks ago, saw a piece of election commentary prognostication, uh, and it showed that Andy Bashir, Bashar, I never know quite how to pronounce it. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. You can send an email and, and uh, use the international phonetic uh, alphabet. You can, you can tell me how to do it. In any case, Bashir in Kentucky had one of the highest, you know, super high, someone like the 60s or something like that. And Tate Reeves, who barely won re-election last night, had one of the lowest. But Reeves is like, you know, in the mid-40s, which isn't terrible, right? So like everybody's popular. Except for except for Joe Biden, right? But they're all in the same country, so we'll talk about that in a minute. In any case, I said, "Kate, what's the you know what's the deal? How can this be happening?" And as we saw last night, it wasn't happening. Not only did uh, Youngkin not re, you know take the state senate, which he needed to do to be able to pass this uh, abortion ban, they lost control of the House of Delegates. 
So it was a big loss. To a certain extent, you can say maybe it was just a big loss against expectations. I mean, why was that so hard to believe? The state's been trending Democratic for a good 20 years at this point and, and pretty decisively since around 20, you know, 2008, 2012. In 2021, Youngkin benefited from, you know, kind of off-year backlash against Joe Biden. Maybe now it's just reverting to form. But it wasn't just there. It's kind of, you know, a lot of different places. And, you know, one more point before we get to get to talking to Kate, which which I'm waiting for too, not just you, trust me. Uh, one thing that we've talked about is that there's been this trend of Democrats keep overperforming expectations in special elections, since, especially since Dobbs. And on its face, that sounds like pretty good news for Democrats. But there has been a counter to that. Some of it is just Republican special pleading, but not all of it. And the counter to that is we are now in an era of different coalitions for both parties. Democrats now pretty consistently do well the higher voters are on the education scale. They have a, a high education coalition. And highly educated people turn out to vote a lot, like all the time. So the argument there is, yeah, it's it seems like it it's telling us something about the direction of the country, but these are very low turnout elections. And even if the pattern is consistent in these low turnout special elections, that doesn't mean it's going to be the case because it's going to be a different uh, demographic of the electorate in a real election. Well, last night was a real election, certainly in the states that held elections or hold, you know, in Virginia where every, you know, I believe uh, every member of the state assembly, both houses of the state legislature were up for election. And by and large, we saw a similar pattern of overperformance. Now, it's going to take a little while to kind of pick apart all the details because there are different kinds of over overperformance. There's overperforming what Joe Biden accomplished in 2020. There's how you do relative to polls where they were available. There's how you do relative to 2019, which is a four-year mark, you know, it states which held the same elections. But it seems like that pattern continued. So pretty solid night and uh since I just showed your predictive abilities, Kate, what's the what's the story? What did we see? Yeah, loved that monologue. Anytime you want to open with a big old serving of Kate was right, I will. Yeah, well, there you uh, go. I love it. Yeah, okay. Let's start with the kind of micro, and then we'll uh, zoom out to the macro. So the races that we were really interested in coming in. Let's start with Ohio. So the straight abortion election, right? Nothing tangential there. Um, as we covered a lot at TPM, the Republicans had gone through, you know, every possible machination to put a thumb on the scale here, whether it be raising the threshold, um, changing the ballot language, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately that, you know, it's, it's in retrospect, like really is a huge deal that the raising the threshold election failed because this would have lost last night if they had managed to torque it up to 60, which they knew. I mean, it's a safe bet when you look at the other kind of red state success of the abortion referendums or their um, you know, rejection of the kind of anti-abortion ones. This is where it hovers. It tends to be, you know, mid to high 50s. Like that's kind of where the national uh, support of, of abortion uh, access is. So as soon as you make it 60, you're probably going to win. Yeah. yeah, really hard. Um, so big win last night, really the only downside of the Ohio vote, um, which was existential. You know, it really was. They have a Republican governor, a Republican state Supreme Court, and a Republican legislature, which is gerrymandered to be that way for the foreseeable future. This was really the only way that Ohio would maintain abortion access for any meaningful length of time. Um, and the only downside last night is that Sherrod Brown wasn't on the ticket alongside it, you know, this election. Um, and I had talked to the people behind the Ohio move and, and in, 
it was purposeful. They wanted to be the only game in town in 2023. They wanted to benefit from the national money and attention that comes with that. Because you know, in 24, we're going to have a whole slate of states trying to replicate this success. Um, so that was a that was strategy. But now you're almost like, man, kind of wish that you had that tied to Brown, who's going to be in the re-election fight of his life, um, and who, you know, as, as much as LaRose kind of made himself the poster boy for the anti-abortion movement, Brown has been door knocking and, and kind of all the rest tying himself closely to this cause. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, I mean, as, as we, as I think we discussed in uh, last week's episode, if LaRose is the, is the nominee for the Republicans, which is not a foregone conclusion, but it's at least a, you know, pretty decent likelihood. And I, and I think it's, it's generally considered to be the case that Certainly, mainstream Republicans are hoping for him because he's sort of like the semi-normy candidate, and you have these more kind of you know Trumpy types that are uh, challenging him. But he did Sherrod Brown a favor to the extent that he just wrapped himself in this. He wrapped himself with it at the beginning. He was the standard bearer for that effort to to change the threshold. To sixty, which, as you said, was right on the mark. They knew what they, you know, they knew what they were doing. That would have changed everything because, as you say, all of these are like, you know, fifty-seven, fifty-eight. That's kind of where the, that's sort of where these um, top off. So, and and Brown certainly was doing everything he could to. I was there for you, you know, you fifty-seven percent of voters. I was there. I was knocking the door. So, you know, he has stand some shot at, you know, kind of grabbing hold of enough that will last for a year, the pro-choice brand, for lack of a better word, and really associating himself with it. I, I do kind of wonder, you know, one thing he can do next year is, and I hope Democrats really lean into this, of now it's, now it's at the federal level. You know, someone's going to win a trifecta and pass a national abortion law, and I'm the one who's going to keep abortion rights because, uh, you know, a national abortion ban would trump the, you know, the law in Ohio. So there's some there's some shot at that. What did you What did you make? And is there? I mean, <laughs> have you? I, I was a little confused, but you know, one of the it's clear that. Virginia Democrats have taken back the House of Delegates. Everybody has called that, but there's still a little uncertainty about the exact margin. One of the races that people were following closely last night was this uh, election. I believe it's in, I believe it's in the outskirts of Richmond. I'm not 100 percent sure of that. Uh, was this candidate Susanna Gibson, who there was this pretty big scandal that it came out that I mean, sort of how much you call it a scandal is based on your own sense of things, but a pretty good big scandal where after she was after the Democrats nominated her, it came out that she and her husband had been uh, posting uh, explicit hardcore sex videos of themselves having sex. And, you know, in the old days, that would have been it, right? I mean, that's that's sort of you you resign in disgrace and everything. She ran what I was I was very she it see it's at least very close what I was a little a little confused about. When I looked again this morning, unlike almost every other race in Virginia, it still only had about 75% of the votes reported. And I didn't know what that was about because almost every other one is 95%. And why that is important is that that race was running pretty close to tide all night with uh, Gibson like you know, 0.1, literally 0.1% behind the Republican. And then she was up 0.1%. But what made me think she was almost certainly going to win is that, you know, as of late last night, when it was, you know, it was, it was already at about 75% of the vote in, what I heard from a very reliable a news source was that the early votes had not been reported yet in that district. And given even now the Republicans have sort of, you know, woken up and smelled the coffee that it's stupid to keep politicizing early voting, it still favors Democrats. So I figured, you know, all right, that's going to, 
that's going to put her over the top and, she, and she's going to win. But again, at least as of this morning, it was still a quarter of the vote hadn't been reported. So I don't know what the what the story what the story is there. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I know that everyone kind of thought she was going to get killed. Um, interestingly, another specific Virginia race it was Danica Rome was running for state Senate, the first, um, you know, one of these kind of trailblazing, openly trans lawmakers and Republicans threw the kitchen sink at her, like a, a heinous transphobic campaign that Yunkin himself dropped like tons of money on pretty easily skated through that one, you know, is the first kind of openly trans um, Virginia state senator, which is interesting because declared you know, like eight or nine in the evening. So not right. not close, not even yeah. close. I think it both speaks to, you know, her as a lawmaker. She's less of a, you know, a new entity to Virginia voters at this point. But also, how many times have we seen Republicans try to tap into the transphobic vein currently kind of roiling the party, which is like, you know, makes up for a huge chunk of Fox News programming and the kind of right wing agitator focus. And it keeps not working. I mean, they did this in Kentucky as well. um, And in Ohio, they both kind of tried to tie in some anti parental rights stuff, some, you know, your child will get, um, transitioning surgeries without parental approval like and they do this every time you know anytime there's any kind of abortion tie-in or anything that's like the slightest bit medical they kind of use that as the opening and obviously with Danica Rome's it's a much cleaner shot in terms of how to tie that in and it has been wildly unsuccessful and I think it's really interesting because it is one of those things where like online Republicans care so much about this, right? Like trans, the idea of trans women competing in women's sports is like, you know, up there with the economy of like how much they care about it. But it's one of those things that is so bifurcated because normal people just don't think about it that much. Like it's a, it's a very small universe of people that are kind of involved in this versus something like abortion, which is basically everyone to some degree. Um, and I think it's interesting because there's this has just been such a concerted effort to kind of use the transphobia stuff as the anti-gay marriage stuff of a few years ago to make that the kind of vanguard of their liberals are trying to change the world in these perverse, horrible ways. And, you know, we're here standing up for traditional Christian heteronormative families. I mean, it's, it really is an attempt to kind of swap in that for gay marriage, but also for abortion, because the anti-abortion movement is just obviously flailing and and you're struggling to find that new thing that works as an electoral carrot for Republicans that they can fear monger around and that has direct ties into all the real tenets of the Republican Party, you know, whether that be kind of gender policing and and rigid, you know, patriarchal family structures and, uh, you know, quashing kind of any straying outside of the the normative boxes and this one has just shown it's it's just not working yeah i think you know i was going to mention something on the transition i'm going to do that in a moment but something you just said about abortion and and you know that the pro-life movement is flailing that is an understatement because i think we you know we we need to step back and see that the big the big question last night was whether republicans have finally found you know the way to unlock or defang the abortion issue with the 15 week ban and you know i'm against a 15 week ban not that it matters you know yes 15 week ban bad but let's step back and realize that that would make something like 90 or 95% of abortions legal at least, you know, in in wherever that was the wherever wherever that was the law, that's kind of where the pro life movement is right now, or at least where and the Republican Party is right now. And that that in itself, the fact that that is where they're at is a you know unconditional surrender almost. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this on the pod last week that it was just I think that was the biggest kind of decoder of how silly the 
the Yunkin bullishness was, was that like a 15 week ban was a an original idea from the Republican Party, which it's not. And B, that Americans who have overwhelmingly shown themselves to have like very little understanding of the technicalities of pregnancy would understand that a 15 week ban is in any way meaningfully different from a six week ban and wouldn't just focus on the word ban because the Youngkin's whole big thing was this is how Republicans are going to deal with abortion. And he did it in a a lean in way where he was like, I'm going to make this election totally about abortion. And that's how confident I am that this is a way kind of out out of the morass. This is the way that we're going to kind of guide the party through the the new uh, future. And it obviously didn't work. Of course it didn't. And then you have all these kind of, um, you know, pundits doing their little meltdowns on Newsmax and such saying like, well, people are just reacting to propaganda. Like they think Republicans are extremist about abortion. And it's like, well, they are. I mean, you just, you can't spend the past few decades being so candid about the idea that the end goal is to ban abortion everywhere, to make abortion legally the same as murder, to give fetuses personhood under the 14th Amendment, and then get to this point and being like, whoa, 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 guys, 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 like we are, you know, we're reasonable about this. We'll work with you on this. When the reality is it's been a religious driven movement from the beginning. And the sides have always been most people who support abortion and then like a small knot of like super intense religious people who have the most extreme possible viewpoint on it. It's not like there's ever been a coalition on the right that is meaningfully for any tempered version of an anti-abortion model. So now this attempt to kind of moderate on it is just like, well, how could you meaningfully do that in any way that A, doesn't piss off that not of super committed anti-abortion activists who all this has been in service of? But Which B, is like and, a majority of their party, not right. a majority of the country, but a majority of Republicans. Yeah. And B, I mean, do it in a believable, ideologically consistent way. You know, like the only kind of fainting in this direction that we've seen is the few Republicans who every once in a while will be like, well, I'm anti-abortion, but I want to support mother, single mothers or, you know, help them. But then it's like, that's also bullshit because you'll have proposals come up every once in a while about, you know, making childcare something that isn't like financially devastating for people. And of course, Republicans all vote against it. You know, it's they have hoisted themselves by their own petard. And this is the natural endpoint there. Really, the only I think what they saw as a saving grace is the amount of pundits, like particularly male pundits, who just keep floating the idea of, well, the Dobbs energy is going to run out. Like people are going to stop caring about that. And so like, why would particularly women stop caring about that? Things have only gotten worse since Dobbs. And as we've discussed a million times, this is an iterative news cycle at its heart because these stories are not going to stop coming out. And it's a state by state thing, you know, so each state is going to have its own, you know, Bans and then children being raped and forcing to have children of their own or, you know, uh, fights in courts over bans and, and heated elections where it's all going to come down to which party controls. I mean, there's there's just no wonder that it's the most salient story in American politics right now. Yeah, I mean, the thing about to the extent Republicans were willing to really fund parenthood, for lack of a better word, to make childcare more affordable, mm -hmm. all the different things, that would that might go some way to showing that those Republicans were not, I don't know, anti-women, you know, kind of acting in bad faith, may, you know, sort of, right? At least it paints a picture of a consistent worldview. But the reality is people want, women want access to abortion because they want to end pregnancies that they don't want to come to term. Now, in certain cases, certainly the financial realities may play into that. But I think we know just living in, the, living in reality that there are very few cases of like, I really want to have a baby and I, 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 I got pregnant, but now I just looking at the looking at my finances and I'm just not sure I can make it work. So now I want to abort this baby. I mean, that, that's there's no that is 
that is not what we're talking about here. So the fact that at least in theory, even though it never actually works out that way, that Republicans might be in favor of some benefits that you might get while you're raising the child that you did not want to have is if that's a disconnect it's it's again it's more as i think we we all know that is a messaging thing not a reality thing people people women want to have abortions because they are pregnant and they don't want to be pregnant I mean, this is obvious, right? I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is completely obvious. I don't even know what we're talking about. You know, the point, I just want to come back to one issue about, about trans politics. And I think to the extent that people get confused about this, it's that I, the, the way that trans rights and the issue of the whole trans issue has evolved in the last decade, it is true that there are a lot of Americans who it's new, it's new for them. And they've got kind of a hard time getting their head around it in various cases. And they see cases of a trans woman who is, is you know, uh, beating everybody in some, you know, in some sport or uh, uh, minors transitioning. And it's kind of, it's, it's, they're having a hard time getting their head around it. But that's not the same as what you see from the right, which is really a hate campaign, right? And that is a, it, it, you can kind of, um, that I think is what we're seeing in a lot of these elections. It's not that there's some sort of decisive majority for kind of the orthodox progressive position on every aspect of trans politics. But people, I think you've got a big slice of the electorate that it's new to them. They're not altogether comfortable with it. But when someone says, so you've got to vote against these people because they're coming to make us all trans, I think a, a lot of those people react of like, that's, that's, not, that's not where I am. I, I'm, not, I'm not with my pitchforks about this, A. And B, it just doesn't have a lot to do with my life. Like, and those two things make it not the issue Republicans keep thinking it's going to be. I think that's right. But I also think it makes abortion even more interesting because just based on the numbers, people are being moved on abortion who are not, you know, themselves women of childbearing age, which does show you that it has a salience beyond kind of just the practical, um, which I think is you know, it, it just isn't indicative of how abortion has become shorthand, I think, for a whole kind of parcel of other ideas, which include rights being taken away, rights mm -hmm. being taken away by people who aren't elected, um, rights specifically of women being taken away. And then you also, I think, have the additional subset of even for maybe women who aren't having children themselves, a lot of women have had children in their lives and have a, a kind of a greater understanding of the the perils and and discomforts of pregnancy and, and blah, 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 and all that kind of ties in. But I do think that gets skipped over in the conversation a lot when we have this thing of how, you know, how long is Dobbs going to last? How long are people going to stay pissed about this? Because it's not just about your own, am I personally going to be able to get an abortion, right? It's just, I think it's just a stand-in for, you know, Republican overreach for kind of uh, trying to get their hands into what everyone considers the most personal parts of, of your life and your body. And, you know, that kind of redounds clearly to Democrats' favor. Yeah, no, I think there's no question. And I, we, we certainly saw that in 2022, when at least the conventional wisdom coming out of that campaign, and I think the conventional wisdom was basically right, that abortion, you know, there was this, leading into 2022, there was this big, you know, Dems in disarray, freak out of, is it abortion? Or is it you know, Jan 6 mm -hmm, and democracy, mm -hmm. which, you know, kind of which, which train do Democrats need to take into this election? And then a third thing is kind of like, eh, it's neither of those kind of like, you know, niche, 
you know, liberal hobby horses, it's jobs and it's gas prices and it's stuff that real Americans care about. And what what clearly came out of the election is that for voters, January 6th and abortion were part of this thing of like, you dudes are out of control and, and I don't trust putting you in power. And I do think that that continues, as you said, continues to be the case. More of this scintillating content after these messages. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back to the show. 100%. And this is part of the reason why I'm not as like panicky as basically everyone else is about Biden in 24. Because so far... To the extent that Biden has been campaigning, you know, which even has like not really started full throatedly yet. But in that he has, it's been what I think is an earnest and good faith effort to inform voters about what he's done, about his accomplishments. And I think ultimately that is just a totally losing game for so many reasons, including the media asymmetry, including the fact that there is a media bias towards negative news and not positive. So he was going to, even if Democrats had some kind of equivalent to the right wing machinery, they were not going to cover the good stuff that came out of the IRA. You know, that's just, it's not how it works. Um, And this kind of high-minded, you know, I am a kind of normal, well-functioning president and I'm going to travel around and I'm going to go to your groundbreakings and your new factories in your town. And I think like that's nice and is an idea of a nicer politics than the one we have, but it's not going to work. I don't think they're going to be dumb enough to like do it for a long time. I think before long, and especially probably informed by these, this wave of elections, they're going to switch to what seems like the obvious stance, which is you throw in a little bit of the, you know, he's normal. He went to Ukraine like he's a he's a good president. But more importantly, the other guys are psychopaths, right? Like they, you know, that's when we'll start getting the Trumps in court all the time. And he keeps thinking Obama's the president. And like on top of everything else we know about him, because right now, I I think part of the reason why Biden is struggling is this combination of trying to do this like do-gooder campaigning, which is just not like that's not the moment we're in. That's not going to work right now. And also Trump has just not really been in the news at all. Um, I think part of this is because with these non-televised trials, it's not the wall-to-wall coverage we might have expected when we first learned he was going to be in and out of the courts like this. It's mostly just, you know, what print journalists can do in the room. And then he'll give his little like babbly speeches outside the bike racks of the the courtroom. Um, but that's going to change when we head to Georgia. And I think that's going to be such good TV that people are, you, there's not going to be no way to not show it, to put it on TV. And the thing about Trump is we had this, prolonged debate, right, about how to cover him. How do you cover someone who lies? Like, should he be deplatformed? All that kind of stuff. And where we ended was a little bit too deplatformy, I think, that it lets people forget how Looney Tunes he is because you really need to see it and, and see his like weird word salad speeches about how the water pressure at his hotel is bad and windmills are killing birds. And, you know, on top of all the, you know, he'll relitigate January 6th ad nauseum. And that's the stuff that's a huge drag on the Republican Party, right? Because they haven't been able to course correct since Trump came on the scene because he won't let them. So, you know, there's no reason to not expect a continuation of these past few election cycles because they're not doing anything meaningfully different. The main characters are not doing anything meaningfully different. And we have a blueprint to follow here, which is 2020, 2022. It turns out it's not actually that bad a case to make, which is you might be bored by me, but look at the other guys. Like it's been a pretty winning uh, equation so far. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, one the only slight difference I would say is, is that I think at least arguably before you, before you get into the election context, that's the time when you just talk a lot about, about the good things you did. Now, that may not help you 
directly in an electoral context, but it at least arguably sort of sets the table for the electoral context that remember one, you know, remember I did this, remember I did that, even even though even if that is not directly um, helping your poll numbers. One thing I think that is, you know, just always important to remember is that there are a lot of ways in which the IRA notwithstanding, Joe Biden being normal notwithstanding, there are a lot of ways in which the world just kind of sucks right now relative to what things were like in 2019. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of like what national politics were like in 2019, but things cost more now. They cost a lot more. They cost more than they did back then. You have two big wars going on right now. These things are real. And, and, and if you are not a total political junkie, you can just say, wow, everything kind of sucks. And to a certain to a, to a real degree they do kind of suck and that that's just the reality um is joe biden responsible for that no but he is president right so i do think that you have to i mean one of the things that i always think about and it's this strange thing because it's sort of obvious on both sides inflation got really high but now it's pretty much back to normal but and and for those of us who live in statistics, you're like, go Joe Biden, you did it, huge win, dude. You said you were going to bring down election, you know, bring down inflation, and you did. You know, promises kept, but the prices are still high, and a lot of ordinary people is like, wait a second, the stuff prices were normal, and they went up higher, and they're still high. What what's fixed now? If you dig into economic theory, if you say, oh, let's have deflation, well, that is like an economic catastrophe for all these different reasons. And the reality is, you know, gas prices go up and down, but normal prices, they don't go back down. And that's, that's just how it is. But let's not pretend that that doesn't still suck when you go to the supermarket. It just, it, it just does. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing in these, and it was it was such a funny thing because last night, right as the results were starting to come in, and you're starting to get a sense like, okay, pretty strong night for the Democrats, this new CNN poll drops that shows Biden four points down to Trump, right? And and everything we have seen over the last like two months or so has been polls that show them, you know, tied more or less with Trump up one point, Biden up one point. And that's freaking everybody out. And now he's like really behind. And so you have these two narratives unfolding at the same time. My own take is basically that we're not in a campaign environment and you have significant parts of the Democratic coalition that are just signaling their dissatisfaction with Biden. They think he's too old. They think that they elected him to make everything good again, and everything's not good again. You've got a small but significant part of the coalition that is really upset about what's happening uh, in Israel-Palestine, and that is all registering in these in these polls. But we're not in a campaign media environment, and I do think. Am I totally confident? Am I just not sweating next year? Of course not. I'm I'm like it's 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 terrifying, but I think it is much more likely than not that you're going to have a reconsolidation of the Democratic coalition that Joe Biden is currently the head of as you go back to okay, old man Biden versus total freak show Donald Trump and that has a way of of focusing the attention. It's just, it's not hard for me to stomach the idea that people are grumpy, that we're a year out, that Biden has never been a candidate who is, you know, who's cool like Obama or, you know, electrifying. People were yeah, not no excited one, about him the first time. No one cries when Biden gives a speech. Right. right. You see like Obama giving a speech 10 years ago and people are like, I knew right. this could be my America. No one's thinking that. He's just a kind of a nice old guy. So it's just, it's not, it's just not hard for me to accept that this far out when, like you said, 
the campaigns have not really started, when most people are not really paying attention, that people are in a bad mood, that things are expensive, that they're seeing kind of these grisly images from the wars, and that they're just like, well, boo, like boo to you, boo to everyone, politics sucks, whatever. I don't find it hard to accept that reality and that the polls are showing us a snapshot, an accurate snapshot of the mood right now. And also that I find it politically fantastical to think that we had the slate of elections last night, including in the, you know, in like Bashir's where he kind of ran, you know, he did not run away from Biden. He he linked arms. He talked about Bidenomics. You know, he ran as a very kind of normal Democrat in the same way that Biden is and that all of these people won, that there was, you know, this enthusiasm for Democratic kind of ideas and, and policies and even just the the brand, which will all dissipate in a year because Joe Biden is suddenly now a really polarizing figure, even though his biggest kind of handicap to this point is that he doesn't really arouse strong feelings on other on either side. I think it's more just he's the scapegoat right now, right? And he's the president. So in some ways, it kind of makes sense. If people are dissatisfied, he's the one that they're dissatisfied with. I just don't think it, I just don't, I don't see a way where this democratic coalition that is kind of held up for all these other elections is suddenly going to fracture because they're so pissed off at him for not doing anything in particular, but just because like the vibes are not quite where you want them to be right now. You know, that just feels it feels like normal kind of democratic panickiness to me. And, it, and and like you said, it's not like I saw this, you know, the New York Times polls and the CNN and was like, well, woohoo, like everything's <laughs> going great. But it's just it's so early for that kind of bedwetting. People are going to be reminded about Trump. And these polls are predicated on the idea of crossover the likes of which we've never seen before. The idea that Trump would win like 20% with black voters. That hasn't happened since like the Civil Rights Act. You know, yeah, that would be a, a century, sea change yeah. in our politics. Yeah. So I, I don't know, yeah. just to one some degree, I think we can calm at, down a little. <laughs> yeah. One thing that jumped out at me about, um, I think it was in that CNN poll last night, it basically showed Trump either dead even or just ahead with 18 to 30 uh, 18 to 30 year old voters i think that is almost impossible to imagine frankly and i think you see something like that and that is much more logically explained by you know our theory of the case than a lot of the you know the david axelrod theory of the case but you know look this is not it it's certainly not me or I think Kate saying like, oh yeah, that poll, nice try, CNN. You're not going to fool us. We're killing this thing and everything's going to be awesome. It's scary. It's scary. Look, it's it's you see those polls, you know everything is at stake and it's scary. And, you know, whenever you are arguing that a consensus of polls isn't really the true story, you always want to you want to give that two or three thoughts right because there's um you know because maybe you're just not maybe you're just not listening to what reality is telling you and i've done that and and i you know i i have a lot of concern about it but this is that's you know that's uh that's that's where i am and, and that you know yeah yeah and I think there's also just an emotional component of this, which is I think is really distressing for people who don't like Donald Trump to even countenance the idea that after he's been an active member of our politics for what, like eight years now, that he is even still on the table in any way that we haven't reached a point yet where you know the the vast majority of the country just rejects him out of hand. I think that's I think that's just viscerally upsetting for people who think he's dangerous and cruel and bad for the country in every kind of way. And I think that kind of overlays um, a lot of the more academic type takes about, you know, bleeding young voters and, and bleeding minority voters and everything. But, you know, just for anyone who is kind of tossing in the anxiety of this, it's just people who are super high news consumers are not the people who decide elections. And those people are paying marginal, if any, attention right now. I don't think the polls are wrong. I think they're probably an accurate snapshot of this moment. I am just disputing 
kind of the the longevity of the worth of having that snapshot when we're this far out. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is right. And I think that certainly for me, and I suspect many uh, listeners who, I mean, by definition, you're, you know, you're, you're not a, you're not a uninvolved with politics person. If you're hearing this podcast <laughs> right now, if you're paying close attention, you not only remember what Trump's presidency was like, but if you're paying attention, he has been making it really clear for the last year that his second term is not going to be like his first term. He's going to hit the ground running, telling his stooge attorney general to go out and indict all of his enemies. I mean, he's literally, his team is literally planning, or at least talking about, you know, whatever the term is, to invoke the Insurrection Act on literal day one. They're assuming there's going to be, if he's elected, on the inauguration day, there's going to be protests around the country. And of course there are. I mean, there were... There were, uh, you know, back in in January 2017, before we knew what a complete freak show he was going to be. Right? I mean, we we had some idea of it, but we didn't know how quite how bad it was going to be. And he's going to basically call out the military on day one. I mean, that's terrifying, right? And and I I have increasingly been of the mind that, and it's not like this is some great insight on my part. I think it's obvious. It's just a matter of putting together the, you know, uh, putting together the the pieces that if he is elected president again, his presidency is going to lead to a major constitutional crisis, exactly when and over what is unclear, that in all likelihood will involve some level of violence. And I don't mean just like violence, like, like, uh, the stuff we saw on January 6th, but that he'll do something crazy. Even his own judges will say no, and he'll say, fuck it, I'm doing it anyway. Or he'll give um, the U.S. military illegal orders, and someone will say, no, we're not, we're not doing, you know, those get, those things get really intense. And he's, you know, he's, that's that's scary. But if you're but I think for a lot of voters, certainly voters who are not that plugged into politics, you sort of remember, yeah, he was a freak, but I mean, you know, he was weird, but we're still here and kind of like I I was making decent money at my job, so kind of like whatever. But people don't pay that close attention. And that's all and, and look, this isn't kind of like so it's gonna be fine. Everybody's gonna figure out how weird he is. It's scary as fuck. There's no question about it. But I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that that is going to get more focus and that will, I, let's put it this way. I have zero doubt. I am absolutely certain that the context of a campaign over the course of the next year will reconsolidate the Democratic coalition. The question is if it will reconsolidate it enough. Right. And that's that's kind of where we are. That's what we're going to find out. So let's wrap up the show with kind of an um, an unrelated but major event that happened this week pre the elections, which is the biggest case that the Supreme Court has on its docket this term so far. It's the first gun case to reach the high court since they handed down Bruin last year, um, which our listeners will remember was the big decision where they knocked down the hundred year old um, New York gun restriction, and then also said for any gun restrictions to hold constitutional muster, uh, they must have some sort of a historical analog, which led us to Tuesday and some of the most kind of surreal oral arguments I've ever heard, because the crux of the question was, is it constitutional to take guns away from domestic abusers? Which is one of those things where if you kind of man on the street at it, people would be like, Yes, obviously. Like, is that is that a question? Um, and shows kind of how far afield we've already gotten from Bruin, right? That we're already at this question. But then in accordance with the court's own precepts, now these lawyers are trying to like plumb the founding era for examples of laws restricting domestic abusers from having firearms at a time where women are like 130 years from being able to vote. The most powerful white women are still completely controlled by their husbands. And we're being like, yeah, this makes sense. Um, 
And I actually thought I'm going to Katani- get out my musket and you are going to be sorry, lady. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> it's just like, I thought that um, Katanji Brown Jackson did such a good job with her questioning of making it clear how stupid this is on so many levels, including drilling down on the fact that at this time, you know, we're talking the laws written by and for the white landowning Protestant men. So per the court's originalism, that's the only body of law you can draw from, right? Like, need you know, indigenous Americans and slaves, those laws are not written for them. They're not included in them. So it's just so patently ridiculous, a model of, of, you know, doing judicial review that a law is only valid if the founders had a sort of similar version of it, like a billion years ago when our society was way more, you know, riven by, by prejudice than it even is now. Um, so it was just kind of ridiculous. The, I never thought that they would uphold the fifth circuit here because the, the guy we're talking about is such a terrible poster boy. You know, he's a, a drug dealer who has a habit of just kind of shooting his gun at random in public um, in, in addition to to threatening to shoot his his intimate partners. So, and it sounded, honestly, I think they're going to reverse the Fifth Circuit. It might even be a 9-0 decision. Um, the, almost the poor guy who was there representing the, the drug, you know, the gun-happy drug dealer was just lost the thread. Like every justice at the end was just kind of pounding on him saying like, I don't really know what your argument is anymore. And Kagan really cut through the fog and was like, well, I think the reason you're running away from your argument is because the consequences are so horrific, right? Like you're kind of charged with standing before us arguing that people who are demonstrably violent and threats most often to, you know, their partners and their children and the people in their household that know they should get to keep their deadly weapons, no matter the propensity for violence they've already shown. You know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so I think they will probably end up turning this one back. I'm sure it'll be heralded as like Supreme Court shows restraint on guns. Like, I, I guess they're not so Second Amendment happy anymore. But this really was just the absolute worst case for the kind of the the guns rights movement and if we take any cue from how the the right wing judges kind of acted during oral arguments they were all just trying to feel out how they can hand down as narrow an opinion as possible reversing this but hey gotta make sure we don't take too many guns you know yeah it's It's sort of an example, and you alluded to this in in a a past episode when we were talking about this case in an earlier iteration of it, I guess when it was, I don't know if it was the trial court level or at the the Fifth Circuit or whatever. But what was always clear, as you made, as you said, was that this is just not your poster kid, you know, your poster child. You, You know, you always want, I mean, it, it, and you can sort of see behind that, that, the activists and the judges were, were kind of telling them this. You guys get a little ahead of yourself. Like we're a sure thing, but we're not that much of a sure thing, right? <laughs> you got to give us something to work with here. That 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 to, if if you if for whatever reason you want to enshrine this principle, you've got to come up with a case where you know a security guard who's a great guy uh, trying to support his family by security guarding and a, you know, a, a disgruntled ex-wife or girlfriend lied about him and they took his guns away and now he can't security guard. And now his kids are homeless and, and they're starving to death. And clearly this, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is, we need the second amendment to save us. That's your test case that at least you don't have a person where kind of like, if you brought him into the court, everybody'd be like, dude, that dude is dangerous. Get him out of here. Cause he's <laughs> obviously going to shoot someone. It was, it was, it was just such a bad, it was such a bad set of facts. They didn't, it's like a hot potato. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be near it. It's so, your hypothetical is really funny because um, it was Alito, I think, who you could tell was yearning for such a case and kept kind of offering them up as hypotheticals. Like the one he was kind of fixated on was this idea of, you know, a domestic 
abuser whose partner took out a restraining order, but he was never told of the hearing and and he wasn't able to make it and mount his defense. So the judge just granted this Harpy's case, you know, on a (laughs) sheet basis and then he goes home and oh my god there's a home invasion and he has to use his guns or he's going to die what about him you know it's like so clearly exactly as you said they were just like this sucks man this sucks i don't want to have to vote against this case (laughs) well it's it it is it is an example where you see where certain real life hypotheticals that have traction with a lot of people turn out to be very different from where a lot of gun rights Republicans are. And the kind of thing that is in the first category is, did you ever feel unsafe during the pandemic when you went to like a big city and things seemed chaotic and weird and and maybe you want a gun because you felt unsafe, but you can't have a gun because some liberal up in Boston said guns are bad and yada, yada, yada. Whereas in fact, it's this kind of thing like, sure, he beat his his girlfriend and he threatened to shoot her, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have his rights. And I think a lot of people say like, actually, I'm not sure he has a right. Like I'm willing to bend the, like, like I'm willing to bend the rules here a little because I that's that's terrifying. And what is your problem, <laughs> right? right? And and but it shows you. But that's but people in that world are sort. That's that's that sounds normal to them, right? Some out of control freak and like yeah, of course he gets a gun. Well, totally. And the other piece of this is. The court didn't have to take up this case, you know. <laughs> you, so it's clearly some of them were like, "Well, let's see, let's see how it goes. Maybe this guy has done some volunteer work or something." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it's. You almost, I almost, and I say this with lots of scare quotes. You know, I almost feel bad for the gun rights types because I'm sure that all the smart ones are like, "How did we get here?" This is such a stupid case. Like this is a, this is this is not the case we wanted. You know, you want a lot of the cases in the sort of the Heller trajectory are salt of the earth African American small business owner didn't want the ruffians to be holding up his small business. He just wanted a handgun to defend his entrepreneurship in the American dream. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not I'm not saying Heller was that, but you get the idea. Kind of like you know, salt of the earth. Everybody can sort of understand. And this is who can understand this? Right. Like the right to, um, you know, the right to get drunk, snort a lot of cocaine, and shoot your girlfriend. That's not. No one feels good about that, right? Right. <laughs> That's kind of where we are with this case. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Did we have another case that we wanted to discuss or No, I mean, we there's stuff going on in Congress, you know. It seems that as of now we're barreling towards a shutdown. Um, so we, we'll, okay, we'll talk about it briefly because I think um both of us are having a little congressional fatigue at the moment. But basically where we have ended up there. I mean, it's been the same story for months, right? It's now we're at the same place of um there's no way to pass all 12 individual appropriations bills by this point, right? The government runs out of money on the 17th. Um, Johnson is like doing the what we've seen from speakers kind of backed into the corner of this like weird spitballing of like, well, what about a laddered CR? Yeah, let's let's do that, which is just like a cascade of shutdown threats of, of, of funding other agencies for various times. Um, we're we're exactly where we were with McCarthy, right? It's like, it's going to have to be a CR, almost certainly. It's probably going to originate in the Senate because the House can't get its act together to do anything. And then we're in the exact same situation of, is the hard right going to say no CR without, you know, getting rid of the education department or something? Or are they going to be like, well, okay, fine, honeymoon period for Johnson. I mean, that's really kind of going to be the ultimate question here. It's funny, before we started recording... Kate and I were talking about this and what we kind of came up with, and I think this is true at some level, or maybe it's just the excuse for why I forgot that we still had to discuss this. But I think there's this kind of collective sense. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on right now, right? You've got this carnage 
uh, going on in Israel-Palestine. You've got the fact that we've still got a big war uh, in, in, in Ukraine. We've got a big presidential election coming up. You've got all the, the Trump trials and yesterday where he's practically Trump practically like physically attacking a judge, like going totally, you know, uh, losing his mind and everything. And, and, and Republicans are still kind of like, Oh, Hey, we people, people, we're going to try to shut down the government and we get some, <laughs> can we get some focus here? And I, do think there's an incentive like like we just we just don't care like whatever do it like like you've you've been kind of like in a slow motion version of this for the entire year like whatever like people are I, I i do think there's a certain extent obviously we care a lot about a shutdown uh that's going to affect a lot of people but i do think there is a kind of an exhaustion and fatigue of kind of like enough of you people like you're in this kind of you're you're stuck inside this open brown paper bag with like 10 weirdos in your caucus and just like figure it out and shut it down if you're going to shut it down and if you're not just shut the fuck up yeah i mean i do think after what was probably a pretty unenjoyable week for biden slash democrats with these polls and everything it would be a pretty nice uh kind of slide into the the holiday season if they have these last night's elections and then Republicans immediate response is yeah okay we're going to shut down the government now because we're too dysfunctional to do our like one legislative job <laughs> pretty much pretty much all right well with that I think we we have covered the full terrain yep. of American politics so that's about all we got for uh this week and uh you know we're, we will be back next week with more podcast goodness all right see you then talk to you later the Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.